Hello and welcome to another episode of Cross-Examine. In this episode, I want to look at a particular passage in the Gospels that is often used to describe the end of the world. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this over the last few months, but with everything going on, there has been a lot of churches and a lot of church leaders that are preaching on the end of the world. They use examples like COVID-19 and political unrest and protests and riots and wars and suffering and all of this, and they use it to kind of freak you out. Uh, and get you to pay to watch their seminar or buy their books. So please know that I'm not here to plant a definitive flag in the end times debate. I'm not here to say that we should definitely be premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or anything like that. Uh, but what I do hope to clear up is some misunderstanding and hopefully remove some of the fear-mongering that I see working its way through churches. The passage that I would like to clarify today is found in a few places in the Gospels. You can find it in Mark 13, Luke 21, or in Matthew 24. Uh, I'm going to work through Matthew 24 because that's the chapter that's most often referenced, uh, at least the, the verbiage that's used there as opposed to Mark or Luke. Let's set up the context here first. In Matthew 22 and 23, if you go back and read those, Jesus is ripping into the scribes and Pharisees. He's calling them hypocrites, brood of vipers, serpents, whitewashed tombs. He's livid. He's fed up with how they've been leading the people of Israel astray. So you basically get a chapter and a half of Jesus laying into the Jewish leadership. And then we come to chapter 24. At the beginning of this chapter, it says Jesus left the temple in Jerusalem, and as he was leaving, in response to a question from the disciples, he tells them that the temple of Jerusalem will be destroyed, and there will not be one stone left on top of another. Obviously, this intrigues the disciples, and so they ask, Jesus, tell us when this will happen. What, what are the signs of this coming judgment? And so, on the Mount of Olives, which is why this is usually referred to as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus rolls out a prophecy for the end of the age. Now, it's the end of the age stuff that tends to get people in a tizzy, and they start to take all of this to mean that it's about us. Let me say this once, even though I've said it plenty of times in, the, in previous episodes. The Bible is not about you. We need to stop inserting ourselves into the text over and over again. The disciples asked Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed and how will we know when it's coming? And when Jesus responds, we immediately think, oh wow, he must be talking about me. <laughs> no, he's answering the disciples' question. So let's go through the Olivet Discourse and you'll start to see what I mean. First, Jesus warns the disciples of false prophets. He says that there will be people who claim to be Christ, to be the Messiah, and he wants to ensure that they're not led astray. In early church history, specifically in the book of Acts, we see false prophets and teachers, and they pop up all over the place. The apostles warn their churches all the time about false teaching. That's because they're taking their Savior's words to heart. Second, Jesus tells his disciples that they will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and that nations and kingdoms will rise up against one another. And this is taken out of context all the time. <laughs> I can't tell you how many pastors I've heard over the last 10 months talk about wars and rumors of wars. And again, we like to make it about us. So in January of 2020, when there, there's rumors of the United States going to war with Iran, what do the fear mongers do? Oh, wars, rumors of wars, there it is right there. But when we understand this passage in its proper context, it helps shed light on what Jesus is actually talking about. You see, at the time when Jesus gave this prophecy, there was peace in the empire. It was called the peace of Rome. 
Look it up if you would like. It's the period from a little before Jesus was born to a little after he died. So for the disciples to be on the lookout for wars and rumors of wars, it meant to be on the lookout for something that they weren't expecting at the time. We, today, hear about war all the time. That's why in World War I and World War II and the Cold War, everyone was like, oh, it's the end of the age. This is what Jesus was talking about. There's wars and rumors of wars. But he was talking about them. He wasn't talking about us. But we'll get to that. Suffice it to say, wars and rumors of wars was something the disciples could look for and see coming in their own lifetime. Next, Jesus says that there will be famines and earthquakes and that these are the beginning of the birth pains. Again, this is something that you hear all the time from people. Oh, we're in the birth pains now. But we must keep this passage in its context. This was Jesus answering a question for his disciples. And he's warning them of something that they could see coming. The birth pains, like war and famine and natural disaster, were the birth pains that tipped them off to the coming judgment on Israel. And we know that all of these things happened too. In 50 AD, for example, there was a great famine in Jerusalem. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about that. And we can go and read about that. Josephus also writes of a horrible earthquake that hits Jerusalem in 67 AD. And after all of this, Jesus tells his disciples that they can expect tribulation. He says that they will be killed and hated and many will fall away or betray their faith. Lawlessness will increase. But the one who endures will be saved and the gospel will spread to the whole world and only then will the end come. And again, this is an area where everyone likes to insert themselves into the text, but we can't do that. I promise you, we will make it through this whole text without inserting ourselves into it at all. It will all make sense. We need to let God's word speak for itself in its context, and try to look at it through the eyes of the disciples. First, Jesus says that, so returning to the text, Jesus says that they will be handed over to tribulation. That absolutely happened. I don't know anyone who disagrees with this. Again, if you read the book of Acts, you see example after example of followers of Christ who were persecuted and killed for their beliefs. It was a pretty common thing for them. But what throws people is the last section in verses 13 and 14, because again, we like to make the Bible about us as much as possible. Jesus says that once the gospel is preached to the whole world, to all nations or all people groups, then the end will come. And since in our mind, the whole world has not heard the gospel, that's why Jesus has not come back yet, right? Not quite. <laughs> when the Bible uses the word world, it very rarely means globe, <laughs> as in the entirety of planet Earth. It almost always means to simply go beyond the known world. In this case, meaning Israel. Jesus' ministry was focused on Israel, and before this judgment comes upon Israel, the gospel must be spread to the world, meaning other people, groups, and nations. And that absolutely happens as a result of the aforementioned tribulation and persecution. When Paul began to persecute the church, Christians fled to neighboring nations, and there they began to plant churches and share the gospel. So as far as this prophecy is concerned, the gospel has already been shared with the world since it has been shared with the Roman Empire. All right, so after this, Jesus uses language that a lot of preachers use to kind of scare the crap out of people. He mentions the abomination of desolation. That's very scary. And it was very scary for the disciples. But again, if we have a proper understanding of the passage, it can be less scary for us. So let's try to understand what it means. 
Jesus says that when his followers see the abomination of desolation in the holy place, that they should flee to the mountains. If they are outside their house when they see it, they shouldn't even take time to go back in and grab supplies or their cloak. It's going to be really bad for mothers who are traveling for nursing infants, or if it happens during winter, it'll be bad, according to Jesus, because the tribulation that's coming with the abomination of desolation will be much worse than what came before. In fact, it'll be worse than it's ever been in history. That's scary stuff. But we should put it in its proper context. Jesus says that the desolation will come to the holy place. Well, what's the holy place? And for that, we need to look back to what prompted the prophecy to begin with. The temple. Jesus said that the temple would be torn down, no stone standing on top of another. And so, when he says that the abomination of desolation will stand in the holy place, he means that destruction is coming for Jerusalem, specifically the temple. And we get a little more insight into what he means in Luke 21, 20, when he specifically says that the disciples will know that desolation is coming for Jerusalem when it's surrounded by armies. So to summarize, the disciples are told to flee as fast as possible and not even go back into their homes for their cloak when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. And you know what? We have historical record that not only was Jerusalem surrounded by Titus's armies before Jerusalem was practically destroyed in 70 AD, but that Christians did indeed escape into the mountains before that desolation took place. Is that sinking in? So to spell it out more clearly, there were followers of Jesus who remembered these words. They remembered this prophecy and they used it to act quickly and save their lives and avoid the Great Tribulation. According to some accounts of this event, about a million Jews died. But of those Jews, very few were Christian. That's because the prophecy was for them. And he says that this Great Tribulation will be cut short. It will not be widespread for the sake of God's people. After this happens, Jesus again warns of false prophets. The Christians in Jerusalem have now been forced into the wilderness. He wants them to still be on their guard and to not look for a physical return of Jesus at that point. Jesus tells them that when he returns physically, it will be unmistakable, like lightning flashing across the sky or like vultures gathering over a corpse. Jesus' return will not be hidden. It will be made clear where he is. And so next, in verse 29, we get some more crazy language that's often spouted in end-time seminars. Jesus says that after the tribulation, the sun and moon will darken and that the stars will fall from the heaven. And far too many teachers interpret this literally, either out of genuine fear or to scare their attendees into buying their books. So let me offer you a word of comfort Jesus is not literally saying that the sun will be snuffed out and that the stars will physically fall from the sky. First of all, if that did happen, we would be pulverized into nothing because stars are much, much bigger than our planet and we'd be dead before they even hit because if the sun goes out, we would all be immediately dead. <laughs> this isn't literal language. This is judgment language. This is hyperbole. It's exaggerated. This happens often in the Old Testament. Just read the book of Isaiah, where these extraordinary natural disasters reflect harsh judgment coming on a people or a nation. Isaiah did it with Babylon, and Jesus is doing it with Jerusalem. He says that these judgments will then put a sign in heaven of the Son of Man coming on the clouds in power and glory. And it's important to remember that this is that, that Jesus says this is a sign of the Son of Man. This is not the physical return of the Son of Man. It's, it's a sign that 
points to him, not his actual return. And Jesus says the sign of the Son of Man is judgment on Jerusalem. So if you're looking for a sign in the sky, there will be a billowing cloud of smoke rising from the temple that has essentially been turned to ash. And upon this sign of the Son of Man, so once this judgment occurs, Jesus says that he will send out his angels to gather his elect, his chosen people. But we could take we could we could take issue with the word angels here in the text. The word in the Greek literally means messenger. It's the same word used to describe many human messengers in scripture, like John the Baptist, who was definitely a man and not an angel. So I think a better translation would be that God sends out his messengers to begin gathering his chosen people. He sends his messengers to begin sharing the gospel even wider than they had before. Jesus then reminds his disciples in verses 32 and 33 that when they see these things taking place, it will happen quickly. And to make it even more urgent, he says, he says in verse 34 that this will all take place within their generation. Now this is crucial, and I know I'm going longer than normal, but stick with me here. Jesus said that all of these things would take place within that generation. So if we're looking at the things he said here, wars, rumors of wars, abomination of desolation, everything else, and we're applying that to ourselves in our own time, then we're saying that Jesus made a false prophecy. And that's something that we should take great care to avoid. Jesus prophesied these things, and they all actually happened within that generation. We know that these things took place by 70 AD. But then in verse 36, we get some interesting insight into Jesus' humanity. He says that he doesn't know when this will specifically take place. He knows it will be within the generation, but he can't tell them if it'll be in a week or a month or a year or 10 years or 40 years. Only the Father knows. And he relates this to the great flood and Noah. In Noah's day, the people were warned, but they didn't know when the rain would come. So they ate and drank and they were going about life as they normally would. And as a result, they were swept away by the floodwaters of judgment. Jesus says the same is true for the coming judgment in Jerusalem. And then finally, we come to the verses that inspire the famous Left Behind Rapture series. Uh, and they did so because I think they take this verse out of context. Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes, two will be in a field and one will be taken and one will be left. And two women will be in a grinding mill and one will be taken and one will be left. And just like that, you get rapture theology. The theology that says the believers of Christ will be taken up with him. But look for yourself in the text. It never specifies who is taken. It doesn't say that believers are taken up. It just says that one is taken and one is left. And we have to remember the context. Jesus mentioned the flood. Who were the ones that were swept away in the flood? It wasn't Noah and his family. It wasn't the believers. It was those being judged. And so I think the same is true here. Jesus is, again, referencing the judgment of Jerusalem. This isn't a future, end times, supernatural abduction of God's people. This is the judgment of Jerusalem for their continual rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They had their chance. He personally ministered to them for years, preaching and performing signs and wonders, and their response was to crucify him. And so this prophecy that Jesus makes is to show that he would return in judgment on Israel, not only just to judge, but to continue furthering the gospel and to gather his elect. 
Jesus was right in his prophecy. All of these things happened in that generation. We're not still waiting for wars and rumors of wars and famines and stars to fall and tribulation. And there are women today who don't want to get pregnant because Jesus warns that it will be miserable for nursing mothers. And that's what happens when you read a passage and assume, oh, it's about me. You end up taking something that was meant for a specific people in a specific place and twisting it to your life. And we need to be careful of doing that with God's word. And now there are parts of this discourse, especially toward the end, that I'm not fully settled on. I don't think this is an issue that we need to hold with white-knuckled fists. I think there are aspects that are historical while at the same time being future-oriented, especially as you move further through the Olivet Discourse, like in chapter 25. My main argument for this episode is to simply try to dispel the fear-mongering that tends to sweep through the church like a wave every time some big crisis occurs. So I know this was long, probably too long, but man, I'm just, I'm tired of, of preachers and teachers trying to scare the crap out of people with this passage. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to plant the flag of, you know, this is how we have to interpret revelation and we have to be this type of millennial view or whatever it might be. But for this passage, it is so crucial for us to understand that if we're using it as a current day end times prophecy, we're making Christ out to be a liar. And I mean that, really. There are atheists who cite this prophecy and say that Jesus himself said that all of these things would come to pass in a generation. So if we're looking for the abomination of desolation today, then he's a false prophet. Let's not do that. Let, let our response be to continue his call to gather the elect, to be his messengers, to gather his elect to him by spreading the good news of Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected for his people and for his glory. Let our response be to call people to repentance in Christ. The judgment that Israel experienced is nothing compared to the judgment that's coming when Christ returns to judge the world. We have a short window of time, relatively speaking, where the gospel can be proclaimed to the world. And we have a short window of time where people can be reconciled to God. We need to be reconciled because if we're not, we will be rightly judged for our sins. So please see the judgment of Jerusalem as a warning shot. Put your faith in Christ, be rescued from the judgment to come, and live abundant life in Christ. But hey, if you've made it this far, maybe you hopefully have a reaction to share with me. Either you think I'm crazy, which I've already admitted to many times, or you agree and you have some insight to share. I would love to hear from you either way, agree or disagree. I think this is an important topic. I don't think it gets enough proper attention uh, other than the fear-mongering that tends to go on. So let me know your thoughts. Let me know where I'm, I'm messing up or what you agree with, uh, and we'll continue the conversation. So as always, thank you for tuning in. May God bless you, and I will see you soon.